Um, John, would you open us in prayer, please? Yeah. Let's pray. Uh, Father God, we just thank you, Lord, for giving us this wonderful day, Lord, uh, Lord, giving us our families, um, and Lord, uh, with all the turmoil going on in the families, Lord, we can still look to you and say that you're good. Lord, we can look at you, and um, even though there's problems in the world, problems in our lives, problems everywhere, Lord, we can still look at you and say, Lord, thank you that you are sovereign. Lord, we just ask you to bless this time. We just ask you to give Chris favor. He's teaching us through James. Lord, you've asked him to give us all attentive ears and attentive hearts to uh, understand the message of, of James so that we can apply it and put it into practice. But we'll look, we'll look forward to this, and we are thankful to you for it. We will give you all the praise, honor, and glory in Jesus' name. All God's people said, Amen. Amen. Thank you, brother. All right, well, we've been making our way through the epistle of James. And so far we've seen in chapters 1 and 2, and then last week in chapter 3, that James has been addressing some, some problem issues in these churches that, have, that are scattered abroad. And as a result of all these issues, and as a result of how these churches have been acting, James has been calling the churches to perform some self-examination. He's been calling the people in the churches to check themselves against the reality of the faith in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ is how James says it. In chapter 1, verse 22, James calls the brethren to prove themselves to be doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. In chapter 2, James addressed the sin of partiality and he rebuked those who were showing favoritism to the rich and were neglecting the poor. And at the end of chapter 2, we looked at James's teaching on faith and how works and faith um, go together, in which he was, it seemed that he was correcting some false teaching. Some people that may have been teaching in the churches that um, you only need a merely intellectual assent to the gospel. You just need to um, believe in the facts, maybe, but it doesn't have to result in, in, in a Christian obedience. Some people may have been saying that all you need to do is profess faith and that's enough. But James corrected that by showing them that if they don't have works that result in the, uh, from their faith, that it's not real saving faith. And, that, um, and then last week, we got into chapter 3, in which James addressed the, the dangers and the sins that come from the tongue. From the tongue. And he specifically addressed, and he called out those who were wanting to be teachers... And he warned them of the seriousness of the tongue and the dangers that, that they would um, actually incur a stricter judgment. These people who wanted to speak in the church, they would actually receive a stricter judgment. And so now we're here in chapter 3, verse 13. Chapter 3, verse 13 is where we're at. And now James is going to dive into the specific topic of wisdom. And, and more precisely, the topic of, of having a true genuine, biblical, godly wisdom, a real wisdom. And so what's interesting to me is that as James does this, it's interesting to me how he does it because he's going to talk about the specific um, topic of wisdom, but he's going to do it in such a way that he's still maintaining his, his whole point of this epistle, and that is to have a real, genuine faith. And here he's going to say, you need to have a real, genuine wisdom. That's what he's going to do. And he's going to say, like he's always been saying the whole time, this, you're going to have to manifest this by your life. By your deeds is going to manifest a true biblical wisdom. 
And so we, we can see this really clearly in this introductory verse, verse 13. I'm going to read it. It says, Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. And so, the, so as James said earlier in chapter 3, there's obviously some people in these churches whose tongues were boasting of great things. And James is calling these people to the mat. He's saying, you may think that you have great wisdom and understanding. Um, you may profess great wisdom and understanding. You may actually know the scriptures. You know, a, a lot of the Jews, a lot of the Pharisees and the Jews knew the, knew the Old Testament nearly by memory. Some people say they did have it memorized. Large, large portions of the scriptures. So they knew what the scriptures said. They professed the wisdom. But this is what James is saying. He's saying, prove it. Right? He's saying, prove that you have a, a wisdom, a true wisdom. And what is James' criterion for someone to be able to justify that they actually have wisdom and understanding? What's the criterion to prove that? In a sentence, it's right here in verse 13 because he says, it's the one who can actually show his deeds in good behavior, in the gentleness of wisdom. And so just so we see that, that this is very consistent with what James has been saying the whole time, this is his constant drumbeat. It's not just a profession that counts. It's not just somebody who, who merely professes um, wisdom and understanding, but you must be able to validate your, your profession by your works and by your good deeds. And so this is the real faith. This is the true faith that's in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. It's not a faith of talk only. It's not a faith of talk only, but it's a faith that produces deeds. And so even more specifically than just doing good deeds, look what James says at the end. He says that they must be done in the gentleness of wisdom. So it's not just that you do some good deeds. It's not that you, you can just do some outwardly good acts. But James is very specific in what a true wisdom results in. It's good deeds that are done in the gentleness of wisdom. So it's very specific. It's very specific that James cares about how we do our good deeds. And it's in the gentleness of wisdom, okay? So when you think of the word gentleness, when James says your good deeds must be done in the gentleness of wisdom, I just wanted to give some more synonyms for this word. Some more words that, that are very similar meaning to gentleness. And a couple of those would be humble, you must do your good deeds in, in a humbleness of wisdom. Another word would be to do your good deeds in a meekness. To have a meek attitude about yourself. And these are how you should, should perform your good deeds. If your deeds are out of a true godly wisdom, those are signs that your good deeds will be done in meekness, humbleness, and gentleness. This is James' basic description. This is it. Somebody who, who is a, tr a person with true godly wisdom and understanding will therefore do deeds and he'll do them in the gentleness of wisdom. So James is going to go on because he's going to unfold this truth more and more and more and more as this text goes on. This is a, this is a big section for him on, on having true wisdom, not just a professed wisdom, but a real godly wisdom. And so now James is going to give us the opposite he told us generally that a true wisdom is one that's done in the, in the gentleness of wisdom. But now he's going to show us the opposite in verses 14, 15, and 16. And this is what he says. He says, but if you have bitter jealousy 
and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there's disorder of every evil thing. Disorder and every evil thing. So the first thing we see in verse 14 is the converse or the opposite of a gentle and humble wisdom. And James describes it as someone, somebody who's doing deeds with a bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in their heart. And James is really going to go on to give us um, some examples of this in the text um, of how this, how this selfish ambition ends up manifesting itself in the church and in these early churches. Um, but I think for us, even before we get to like some examples of how this ends up working itself out, for us, as a very new church, very, a very um, young church, I think that it would be helpful for us to do maybe some preliminary heart checks before any of this stuff starts to manifest in our church. Right? So you're all ready? You got your steel-toe boots on? Because James steps, steps on your toes. But this is the questions that I would ask for our church and, and to us directly. Why do you do the things that you do in the church? Why is it that you serve in the church? Why do you do evangelism? Why do you serve in the children's ministry? Why do you, why do you make food for, for others in the church? Why do you teach? Why do you preach? This is getting at the heart of these problems in these churches that James is addressing. Because these people were doing these things out of a jealousy, James says. They were jealous of others. And so before this happens to us, we should ask ourselves, are we jealous of others in the church? Are there some people in the church that we look to that, we, that we're envious of them? And, if, and, if, and, and this causes us to be motivated to do things. Because that's not godly. That's not a true wisdom. So are, 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 are we attempting to make ourselves maybe better than others in the church? Is this our motivation? James describes th these people as having a selfish ambition. So do we have a selfish ambition, a selfish motivation for serving? Do, do, do we serve Heritage Grace out of, because of what we might get out of it? What we might profit? Do you serve to get approval from others maybe? Do you serve maybe to get prominence or control over people? I mean, these are, these are real things that happen in churches and were happening in this church. Um, last I have here, which could be maybe the worst of all, do you serve the church for monetary gain? Because the scripture um, fully denounces that several times. Those teachers who were going after filthy lucre. Um, this is one thing that, you know, in Paul in 2 Corinthians, he denounces. He said, I've denounced, you know, going after a ministry for these things. Yes, Josh? What is filthy lucre? Filthy lucre, like, I always thought it meant basically a, a gain of money that's unrighteously earned. You know, what do you, what do, what do you think it is? Well, I, was, I just thought about it after I asked. Oh, <laughs> is that what you think it is? Does that sound right? I, I, well, it sounds like it's related to lucrative. So mm -hmm. filthy lucrativeness, like a... Gaining. Sorted gain, like a... Sorted gain. Maybe that's the, I don't know, filthy lucre. Is filthy that King James? King James? That's King James. Okay. All right. That explains. That's, that explains. Exactly. Okay. So, right. Th those are the hard questions for, our, for us to ask ourselves. And I'm going to move on. But I hope that, 
that if some of those did hit home, if James did step on the toes, I mean, as we're going to see, the result of this type of ungodly um, selfishness is going to result in horrible things for the church. And in in, in what James says to those who have these things in them, he says, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. Because it would be the height of arrogance, I, I would think, first of all, to think that you're going to get away with that. Right? Because you can fool the church. You can fool people. But as James has already said, um, we are going to stand before the Lord. And, and it will be um, revealed. Josh, you got something else? Well, yeah. I was just thinking that First Timothy um, passage in chapter 6. Mm-hmm. It says... Uh, but godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. But he gives a context of that. He says, mm-hmm. uh, "He says, for we have brought nothing into the world, so we can take nothing out of it either. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. Mm-hmm. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some by longing for it, just the longing of it, mm-hmm. right, is up for it, it have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves, pierced themselves with many griefs. Mm-hmm. So the gentleness of wisdom, you can kind of see the, in, even in First Timothy, mm-hmm. and just that apostolic doctrine that they have there. It's like, mm-hmm. look, gentleness of wisdom says, you're going to understand godliness with contentment is a huge game, but if you go the other route, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's that's a good parallel passage. It's exactly what he's talking about. Um, I mean, I kind of made up the, the specific example of monetary gain, but yeah, that's the that's the same idea. That's the same idea. Let's look at verse fifteen. This is what verse fifteen said. I've already read it, but this is this is how James describes this type of wisdom, which of course isn't a true wisdom. He's speaking about a, a false wisdom. He says, This wisdom is not that which comes from above, but is earthly, natural, and demonic. Mm. And so as I said, this is a false wisdom, of course, um, that James is speaking of. And when James says that this is an earthly wisdom, right? I think we, I think we generally understand that it's a worldly wisdom. It's a, world that you, a wisdom that you would gain just from the, the thinking of, of the people of this world and of this worldly system. And I would say one in which self-promotion is of the primary concern of people in this world. Right? Their, their, their utmost desire is for self-promotion, to be made much of. Right? So that's a good description. The second thing he says is it's natural. It's a natural wisdom. And so I think the good references for that to help you understand that would be uh, where Paul talks about uh, almost similar to uh, the wisdom of the world um, and the natural man in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. A natural man. And in Jude 19, the same exact word there in these texts are, is translated unspiritual. Mm-hmm. It's an unspiritual wisdom. It's natural. It's the wisdom that the natural man has that does, that does not have the Spirit of God. And so last but not least... James describes this kind of jealous and selfish ambition as demonic. As demonic. If it's, not, if it's not spiritual, it does have a root. And he says that it's demonic. And so I, I have here the example of, of Judas. 
because you see what a demonic or especially a satanic um, mindset can give someone. A satanic influence is going to give someone in, in a, self, a person who has a selfish desire, Satan's going to use that. And one would go as far with a demonic mindset to sell out the Son of God for 30 pieces of silver. I mean, that's how far we would go if not by the grace of God, because, it, because we have these selfish desires in us. So, so a demonic mindset, a worldly mindset, would sell out the very Son of God. And so, so with that being said, it would be an easy thing for someone with a demonic thinking to wrong someone in the church. You know, I mean, if you'll go as far to sell out the Son of God with that type of thinking, you're, you're not, it wouldn't be much of a task for you to, to hurt someone in the church. Right? Let's read verse 16. James says, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. And so this is what I was talking about earlier. These are kind of the outworkings and the results of people in the church who have jealous and selfish ambitions. He says there's going to be disorder in every evil thing. And I, So I mentioned the, the sin of Judas, right? That's kind of like the extreme ultimate result of somebody with selfish ambition that they sell out Christ. Um, but I think for us, it would be good to remind ourselves of the teaching of, of Paul, like for instance in 1 Corinthians 12, where he describes the body of the church as the body of Christ. Right? Paul has a very high view of the church, and so should we. In 1 Corinthians 8, 12, I mean, he, he, he says it, he literally says it like this. He's talking about um, Christian liberties, not, not hurting a brother's conscience in the context. But he says this in 1 Corinthians 8, 12, he says, By sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it's weak, you sin against Christ. Right? By sinning against the brethren in the church, you're sinning against Christ. And so I think it would be helpful for us just to, to have the high view that Scripture has of the church to keep us from from being willing to go through with maybe some selfish ambition that we have, to not go through with it, to cut that off. We need to be careful how we behave in this church because we are the body of Christ. Of course, we're spiritually speaking, not physically speaking, we are carrying out. We have the Spirit of God here, and to sin against the brethren is to sin against Christ, it says. So what we should be striving for is, is not these selfish ambitions, but what verse 17 speaks of. Verse 17, it says, But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering and without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Now that's a lot of, that's a lot of descriptors that James gives us for the wisdom which is from above. So it's, it's really helpful to, to have that many adjectives to describe. It really helps us to develop in our minds what this looks like. And we didn't, we're not going to have time to look at each word. But I did want to concentrate especially on the very first word that he says. He says, wisdom from above is first pure. Wisdom is pure. It's not, it's not a reference to sexual purity, like in that sense. He's just speaking of a purity of motive, a purity of heart of the one who has received wisdom from above. 
And, and we can see this. It's, it's the sense of a holy, a holy um, motive, a holy wisdom. The word, the word used for pure there is, is from the same root word as the word for holy. You can hear it. The word for pure in the Greek is hagne. Hagne. And the word for holy is hagias. Hagias. You can hear the, the root of the word is the same. And so the, these words aren't, aren't far off from each other. So, so with, that, with that to help us understand what he means by a pure wisdom, this is a wisdom that's not tainted. It's not tainted with sin. It's not impure. It's pure. The wisdom that the, the, the person who does good deeds in a true godly wisdom acts with pure and righteous, righteous motives, not selfish motives. That's the contrast. Um, it's a, I thought of what we, what we studied in 2 Corinthians, where Paul talks about he does his ministry with a clear conscience. Right? He, he says he does his works, his ministry, his good deeds with a clear conscience in the sight of God. You know, it's pure. It's pure and undefiled. And that's, that's what we should be striving for. James goes on to list the rest of the adjectives of a godly wisdom. And next on the list, you see is peaceable. A godly wisdom is peaceable. And so with this word, I just this, jump to verse 18. Because Paul uses this, I mean, uh, James uses this word here to to almost describe what what peaceable will result in, a peaceable spirit, a peaceable man with good wisdom. Verse 18 says, And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And so before class, we were talking about some of the tough verses. This would be one of the tricky verses to bring over into English. Because I don't know how, how... how easily that flowed, verse 18 there for you guys. So I want to read the NIV version of that verse because I think it smooths it out. Um, It makes it a little easier to understand. This is how the NIV says it. The NIV says, Peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. And so it's it's saying what's going to come out of, of of good deeds that are done with a peaceable spirit a peacemaking spirit. It says it's going to raise a harvest of righteousness. It's going to, opposed to what James said, the unrighteous, um, selfish ambitions were going to cause um, everything evil, you know, all kinds of evils. If you do your works with a peaceable spirit, you're actually going to produce and raise up righteousness. So James is just using like a farming analogy. He's just saying if you plant with peace, if you do your work with peace, you're going to raise up righteousness. That's what he's saying. So let's go back and read. I'm just going to read through real quickly the rest of the descriptions there in verse 17 of a godly wisdom. He said it was gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering and without hypocrisy. And I think think Josh kind of called it last week. And if some of you haven't noticed, this list here is very similar to in, in actually a lot of the words and in meaning to, to Paul's fruits of the spirits, fruits of the, fruits of the spirit from Galatians 5. They're very similar, and we'd expect them to be. A person who's, who's exercising a true godly wisdom in the church is going to have the fruits of the spirit. Right? They're very similar. Peace is one. Goodness is one. Gentleness is one that are the same. Very same fruits of the spirit. 
And so these are the words that James uses also to describe a true godly wisdom. Okay, so let's go ahead, because we're, we're doing well. Let's go into chapter 4 here. Now James is going to get back, um, like in chapter 1, he's going to get to the root, the very bare bone root of the problems, just as he did in chapter 1, in verse 4. He's going to get to the root of these people's problems. Let me read um, chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. He says, what is the source of your quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. So James, James has heard of these, all of this disorder in these churches, the quarrels, the conflicts. And he's telling the people, he's getting right to the root of the issue, why this is happening. And he says that it's their pleasures, it's their lusts inside of them that are leading to these problems. Um, yeah, we, we, I think we kind of looked at this in James 1.14. This is what James 1.14 says. I'll just read it for you quickly. This is what James said. He said, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. So the problem, of course, is the people's sinful natures. That's the root of the problem. That's where all of these problems are coming out of, is their sinful natures. He, he describes it like this. He says, Is not the source your pleasures that wage war inside your members? I think he's speaking about the, the, the people's bodies. Even inside their own bodies, their pleasures are just waging war. You know, hopefully, you know, for the Christians who have the spirit there, there would be a, a, a real war happening there. Mm -hmm. The desires of the flesh and the desires of the spirit are, are going at war. But it seems like these people are giving in. These people are not um, giving in and cutting off uh, the temptations. Now, verse 2, I talked about tough verses. Verse 2 is tough. Simply for the reason that there's a lot of debate on whether these churches had really gone to the extent of murdering each other. Had they gone that far to murder each other? Um, you know, like I said, there's a lot of debate, especially amongst the commentators, of course. Um, and I don't have any reason to think that it wouldn't be happening. Because like I said, with a sinful motivation, with a selfish motivation, you'd go as far as to, to kill the Son of God. So like I said, to these people, they, it may not have been that much to murder a brother. Um, so, I, so I didn't want to get carried away with it. But I think we can see the seriousness of these wars that are going on. And we see this here, even if they weren't literally murdering each other, we know from what Jesus taught, and James would have known as well, the seriousness of murder in God's sight. You know, He said it's just like hating someone is, is, is just like committing murder. Yeah, Josh. I was just going to say that you see uh, how hatred would be something amongst them. Uh, how it could possibly be hatred? I mean, that'd be kind of like getting away from the text, but. Uh, well, I mean, so 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 I'll tell you like like one little interesting note here about like the word murder, because that seems so extreme. Yeah. You know, like Erasmus. Literally said, you, so you know about that. He, he literally said, well, it's probably a scribal error. Because if you change just two words, if the scribe would have just changed, I mean, two letters in that word, it would actually be translated envy. 
right? So we said that was probably a scribal error. They probably mistranslated so don't you it. Run into redundancy when you do that with the you are envious. Well, yeah, so, so that's why he said that's probably why he, he may have used that word, just because that's what he's talking about. But it could go either way, right? But you should be surprised. Look at the list of people that I have that went along with what Erasmus's theory was. There's Luther, Tyndale, Calvin, Beza, Mayer, Moffat. I mean, they're saying that's a possibility, you know, just because I guess they don't think that these people would have gone that far, you know. But for me, I think... You know, I think our desire isn't actually like, man, I want to be a first century church. You know what I mean? I want to go back to the apostolic. I mean, these churches were horrible. A lot of I mean, a lot of them, you know, some of them weren't. But um, so I don't know. You, know. you just look at these churches that James is writing to. And if they were murdering each other, I mean, I think we're doing pretty well. <laughs> you know? Well, even, even if they weren't physically mm-hmm. murdering each other, that's how Christ views just hatred that it's mm-hmm. that severe exactly that it can cause such a great magnitude of sin if it continues mm-hmm. yeah. mm-hmm. so if you continue in your flesh you, you're like you're saying we're all capable yeah. of that outside of Christ and so yeah. that's I think that's exactly the proper word to use yeah. because it would lead to that eventually yeah yeah, mm-hmm. yeah it would Josh um, just question two on the textual side of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you see it? Was it a conditional clause or anything like that? Like cluing you in on it, or um, what is the source of? Like, is he asking that? Like, yeah, it's like a fir- it's like a first class conditional clause, right? Where he's assuming this is actually happening. Yes, that's what I'm wondering. And so this saw. is that's exactly one of the verses like we talked about last week. Like James thinks these things are happening. Okay. And so, yeah, he's addressing exactly I that. I was going to bring it up, but I was, I was me and you, but yeah. Sorry. Yeah, that, that's that's exactly one of the sentences where they're saying this is probably, James thinks this is happening in these churches. That's, okay. um, so let's look, because what I'm going to do is I'm going to take the end of verse 2 and run it into verse 3, because James is going to give us some reasons of why these churches' prayers are not being answered. And I think just the end of verse 2 um, goes with verse 3 as far as understanding that concept, right? So, so the end of verse 2 says, You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. So one reason that the, these churches aren't getting um, what they want and, it, and they're going to the, to the sinful paths to get what they want is because they haven't asked God. They haven't prayed to God. They're so caught up in their worldly thinking. You know, they're not even, they're, they're unspiritual thinking. They're not thinking of, of God. Um, that's, not who they're, that's not who they're going to for these things. They're trying to get them. They're just trying to get them through selfish means. Um, probably trying to raise themselves up in the church. You know, he talked about it at one point. They could be seeking it through that, through that means. Um, and so even when they, so in verse 3 he says, so even when they do ask, they still do not receive because they ask with wrong motives. They're asking for things so that they can spend it on their pleasures, he says, to fulfill their, their own desires. You know? Um, and I think that these things will, will directly apply. They, they carry right over to us. These truths right here about prayer will carry right, in, right over to us. You know, if we're not content, there's things that we want, um, even, even good things, Maybe, maybe we don't have them because we do not ask. You know, maybe we don't have them because we don't ask. And then maybe if we have asked and we're still not receiving them, 
it could very well be that we're asking for the wrong motives. We're asking with the wrong motives. You know, I have, I have John 14, 14 here where Christ says, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Right, so from that text, we, we usually draw that it has to be in Christ's name when you ask something. It has to be for His glory and according to His will. And He tells you, you will receive it. So, right. Chris, I think, yes, about, sorry, I think about that verse, and I remember before I was a Christian growing up, I've always heard that verse taken out of context. You know, mm-hmm. well, the Lord says, if you ask, you'll receive, talking about the materialistic things. But, mm-hmm. you know, as my walk in Christ um, and just seeing His Word when you do pray for godly things, things mm-hmm. that are honoring and glorifying them, whether it be as a wife to your husband or to your children. And um, he does answer. He does he does give you. Mm-hmm. And so I just I love that verse because for so many years it was so yeah. taken out of context. Yeah. Like the prosperity <laughs> and I totally preachers. Get it now. Yeah. I get that. Yeah, I mean, that's a great promise. When we looked at some of the great promises in James, I mean, that, that would be yeah. a great thing, a great truth. Mm-hmm. If we would ask with the right motive, He will grant us, you know, for His own glory. So that's great. So it just makes me wonder. I mean, I've asked for a lot of things that I think are godly, and I haven't gotten them. Right. <laughs> you know, so that, that shows me what, probably why I didn't get them. It wasn't according yeah. to His will, and I probably asked for the wrong reasons. Mm-hmm. I guess you know? I think of, you know, some of my own prayers, you know, Lord, help me to be a godly mother to my children. Help me to train them in truth and righteousness. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, to be a godly wife and so forth. And, and not necessarily, you know, material things or, you know, purposes that are job or, you know, mm-hmm. of course, you know, that's God's um, grace. But I'm talking about the spiritual things, mm-hmm. true spiritual things that God has called us to be, uh, whatever you know, relationships we're in as a wife or a mother, husband, mm-hmm. and so forth. And he does answer. Yeah. You know, he, he does give. Yeah, that's, that's what's so good, I guess, about having the scriptures and having God que- clearly revealed his will in a lot of things mm-hmm. is that we can we can know that we're asking according to his will. You know, we pray for the things that are, you know, clear in scripture. Mm-hmm. Yes, God, I know you want me to be a godly wife. God, help me be a godly wife. You know you're praying according to the, the will of God. Right. Right. Okay. So let's get let's get back here. Let's get back and let's look at verse four. Verse four, I'm gonna read verse four and, and five actually. He's, this is what James says to the churches there. He says, You adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he made to dwell in us. And so to call these Jews adulteresses really really would be like the height of rebuke for them. To be called a because as we've heard, and most of us, a lot of us in Emilio's teaching, like I think it would have brought Hosea in the account of Hosea and Gomer to, to mind, you know, to be called an adulteress, unfaithful like Israel was. You know, that would definitely step on their toes. Um, you know, Gomer went after all these worldly things, right? She, she went after these, these illegitimate lovers for bread, 
water, wool, flax, oil, drink, silver, and gold. That's what Hosea lists, right? She's, she forsake godly wisdom. I mean, she was married to a prophet of God. Um, and she did these things for her own pleasures. And so if we too have that type of thinking, that worldly type of thinking, the scripture is telling us we are actually an enemy of God at that point. To be an enemy, enemy of God. And I mean, so, so need, I, need I remind you of, of that place of being an enemy of God, the, the infinitely horrible place of being God's enemy? Because it doesn't, I know, I mean, yeah, so, so it sounds like we're, we're preaching to a brick wall sometimes, like at Southlake, for instance. Like we're telling people the wrath of God is on them. They don't believe us because they don't, it doesn't seem that way. Right. It seems like God's, they live in Southlake. I mean, it seems like God is blessing them. You know, and that's what they think, you know, but all they're doing is chasing after the world and the world's giving them what they want, probably. Um, so you don't necessarily feel it, right? You can't tell, according to worldly wisdom, whether the wrath of God is on you or not. But James is telling you how you can know and be sure is that if you are worldly, if that if you have selfish ambitions, you can be assured that that you are an enemy of God at that point. So as far as those go, that's, that's a tough thing. Um, because remember, he's writing to the churches. So there's people in the churches that he's saying are enemies of God. That's what I was going to wonder. Like, mm-hmm. How did you deal with that? Like, He's saying like, people in the church are an enemy of God or making themselves hostile toward God. Yeah. Do you think, do you think that correlates back to the whole murder thing? Or? Yeah, I mean, so obviously it's, it's always a mixed multitude, I think. Kind of like Hebrews, right? Like you can say at some point there's people there who aren't genuinely saved. You know, they, they may have tasted the spirit, they may have been amongst the brethren, but they're not really, you know, they don't have the things pertaining to salvation. Probably in the same way, he's calling out those who are not really saved in these churches. Those who are saved are probably amening everything he says, and thank you, James, for writing, but it's, a, it's probably a mixed multitude. So would you think it adds to the difficulty of interpreting the first couple verses in the chapter to deal with that whole murder topic and because he is dealing with mixed multitudes, so maybe mm-hmm. it really was happening there. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, so if it's really happening, like say he wrote this to our church and this stuff was going on, right? That, that would show that there's probably unsaved and saved people here, these horrible conflicts, people with jealousy. Um, they, I mean, I think if, if I was to receive that letter, we would, we would do as a saved person, we would, would react and we would try to handle those things just as James is describing them. We would seek out those and, and discipline, right? He's calling for discipline, I'm sure, on these who are, who are acting like this. Um, my study Bible says, and John MacArthur says, the picture is of unbelievers so driven by their uncontrollable evil desires that they will fight to death to fulfill them. Mm-hmm. So going back into the, the murder. Mm-hmm. So he's he's saying unbelievers, like mm-hmm. you're saying, a mixed multitude, and he's mostly pertaining to unbelievers because mm-hmm. yeah. they're, they're uncontrollable. Hey, Chris, yes, sir. I wouldn't... Um, you know, I, I'd be careful, you know, at the same time, not to draw such a sharp distinction, you know, between, you know, these are attributes that can only belong to unbelievers. Mm-hmm. You know, we have to be careful yeah. of that, too. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, David was a believer. He murdered and committed adultery and murdered everybody on the battlefield that day. Yeah. So we, we don't want to guard against ever thinking, well, just because if you commit uh, murder, even, mm-hmm. you know, as yeah. hard as that is for us to say, yeah. even if you commit murder or if you're you know, if there's strife or jealousy, 
that must mean you're not a believer. Right. You know, of course yeah. not. Right. You know, we, we, we all are capable of such things. Yeah, that's you right. Know? And, but like you said, you know, mm -hmm. if you truly are saved, you'll deal with it. Mm -hmm. You know, you'll react to and it. And there'll be a war. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there will be. Like in, the, in a godly way, you'll deal with sin in a proper manner. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, so. Yeah, so, amen. You know, I just, and I'm careful, you know, yeah. I, I know that, you know, it's, it's obviously hard for us to confess about ourselves yeah. that put in the right situation and the right circumstance, we are capable of anything. Mm -hmm. Though we though we are indwelt with the Spirit and though we're believers, mm -hmm. you know, um, you know, I think I think that's just you know, like the confessions even would say that you know, mm -hmm. the Westminster Confession, you know, believer and they they, they, they cite David, you know, can, mm -hmm. can be and even fall into heinous sin for a season, adultery and for a season, murder, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? But he will ultimately repent. Yeah. And, and but yeah. if he doesn't, well, then then. then he really He's wasn't. Not a believer. Yeah. You know what I mean? Well, maybe. So let me put it like this then, because yeah, that that's, that 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 needed to be said. Um, so I think James, I think he'll almost help us out here with verse five, the next verse, right? Because it's the the tension, right? Is he writing to unbelievers? Or is he writing to believers? Do these people even have the spirit or not? You know. Let's look at verse five. This is what he says. He says, "Or do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the Spirit." which he has made to dwell in us, right? And so again, here's another very, very difficult verse for many, many reasons. And I actually wanted to go through some of those reasons, but for time's sake, we won't. Um, but right, so here I think we have another clue into how this works. James is saying is that God has given this spirit and he jealously desires that spirit, which he... Which he He's made to dwell in these, these people in this church. Some may have it, some may not. You know, of course, that, that's, that's a reality. But this is kind of tricky because in what way or how does God, because that's what the he's referring to, how does God jealously desire the Spirit? That seems kind of almost vague, um, right? Like, what does that mean? But I think, in short, I think God desires for His Spirit to be recognized and obeyed. He jealously yearns for his spirit that he's put in these people to be recognized and obeyed and for these people to be convicted of it. And all this jealousy, unrighteous jealousy that they have, he, he, he wants the spirit to be the one that they would allow to do, the, do a work. Right? So, yes, sir. Well, I was just, um, I was just thinking, as you guys mentioned earlier, just the similarity between like the fruit of the spirit, mm -hmm. right? of the flesh and that and mm -hmm. it's just kind of because it's in a similar context I think I would tend to you know look at it at least partially along those lines you know that mm -hmm. like you're saying God wants to see the spirit in these people he wants to see like the manifestation of the spirit at yep. work in them yep. you know the same spirit he made to dwell in them you know he wants to see them I guess if I if I had to just say okay what is that what is that yeah I guess I would say that what he's saying there is he wants them to walk in the spirit yeah yeah, that's right. Mm. That's best. Thank you. Probably. Yeah, thank you. Because that's a hard verse. You want to close in prayer? Let's close in prayer on a good interpretation. <laughs> no, but that's it. Yeah, so God jealously desires for the spirit in these people to be actually manifested. If it's there, to be manifested. And I was yeah. going to say, it, we, we, we feel that same thing too for each other. Mm -hmm. You know, because we have the spirit of God living in each other, and I want nothing more than to see like him... Him walking in the Spirit, and mm -hmm. you know Cassandra and Kevin, all mm -hmm. of us. Like that's my greatest desire because the Spirit's living in me, and so that only comes from God. Mm -hmm. 
it's his greatest desire. Yeah. And so, um, you know, I don't know that verse where it's located, but remember it says, what is it? I think it's Paul. I desire for them to walk in. Anyway, I'll look it up. Mm-hmm. But, but yeah, but you. But you even we jealously saying. desire the spirit to manifest in people, you know, that we know has yes. has the spirit. Yeah, we we desire that. Um, well, I'm just, let's just sh- just just real quickly because it, so even if that is an awkward verse for you, verse let's read verse six and maybe that'll just put us at ease here because it's very straightforward and is really good news for the Christian. Verse six says, "But he gives a greater grace." Amen. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This, this is a direct quote from the Proverbs, Proverbs 3 and verse 34. And this is just a great reminder. And it would be a great, it would be comfort to those who, even if they were sinning, but were Christians, that if they would humble themselves, God would give them a greater grace. And God would um, raise them up if they would but humble themselves. Um, and so I just think, like, just in short, for our church, I pray that God would, would give us this greater grace. I pray that if there is anything inside of us that is tending towards selfish ambitions, if we're doing things with wrong motives, no matter what, how great the thing is or how good it is for the church, if you're doing it with wrong motives, it's still going to manifest it in, in horrible dissension and in, in all sorts of evil, the text says. So I just pray that God would give us a, a true godly wisdom that would cause us to to do the things that we do for God's glory and for the church's good. All right. Amen.